X-ray. And welcome to the Beer Vana Podcast. Hi, Jeff. Hey, Patrick. How you doing? I'm pretty good today. Yeah. Once again, we are here, nearly live from the studios of X-Ray FM. Here, I'm going to get it right this time, in the Falcon Art Building in beautiful North Portland. Two times correct. All right. <laughs> it only took us about six months. Uh, with me, as always, is Jeff Allworth. Jeff, you've written books. I have. I've seen them on the shelf. Beer Bible, Widmer Way, and Secrets of Master Brewers. And with me is uh, Patrick Emerson, a professor of economics at Oregon State University. And across from us is producer Will Romy. Hi, Will. Hey, Will. <laughs> He's waving. Uh, producer for now. Uh <laughs> yeah. Burn. Well, he's leaving us to go be a maltster. Not, not, not that we're bitter about that. Yeah. We're kind of, he re- he recruited us here to x-ray and then he abandoned us almost oh, come immediately. On, make, make malt jokes. You should say you're sweet on it. <laughs> oh, boy. Oh, burn. I, I, oh. Wait, who's that voice coming in from the ether there? Yeah, wait a minute. Hold on a second. Peanut gallery. <laughs> Uh, you might know or might have figured out that today we have a special guest in the studio. Uh, well, you figured out we have a guest. I'm telling you he's special. Uh, it's someone we've been meaning to have on the podcast for years. Uh, Van Havig is the co-founder of Portland's Gigantic Brewing, along with his partner Ben Love. They founded Gigantic seven years ago in 2012, and Gigantic was quickly regarded as one of Portland's best and most unusual breweries. I like how you did the past tense there, Jeff. Don't worry about yeah, it. Yeah, yeah, I yeah. That too. Well, in 2012, we're talking about 2012. That's uh, correct grammar. <laughs> we'll talk. <laughs> well, we'll talk more about gigantic. Uh, we'll talk e- economics. We will. Oh, that's right. Uh, Van's career. Uh, Van is sort of a fellow traveler. With, that's right. With me. So, uh, and possibly 1971 Italian sports cars. Jeff says here. Well, I've had, I've had 60s and 70s Italian sports cars. To be technical. Apparently, we can only talk about the one from 1971. <clears throat> that's okay. So be careful. That's yeah, the, I'm, I'm that's, fine with that. The current one, man. <laughs> that's the current one. All right. Uh, so we might as well get right into it. Uh, we don't have any news uh, today, so we're going to skip the news because we just got to save all our time for Van here. Uh, so Jeff, why don't you give us Van's introduction? Okay. I'm going to read this, uh, which it would probably be better if I just said it off the cuff, but I'm going to read it anyway. Uh-oh. Van Havig is one of the more interesting figures in the beer world. He's, he's, he's skeptical. <laughs> he got started brewing in 1995. Uh, if any of this is wrong, you can correct me at the end. Correct, so uh, far. Uh, <laughs> but before that, he planned to be an economist and pursued a PhD at the University of Minnesota. That's true. And we won't hold that against you. Wait, did you just boo Minnesota? Yeah, we're, yeah. we're Wisconsin alum, so. Oh, yeah, I'm fine with that. And I, yeah. grew, I grew up in Madison, so on Wisconsin. And before yeah, that. Yeah, it was grad school. It's like you don't, I mean, as you, you know, as a grad yeah. student, you don't have the same kind of Yes. You do if you go to Wisconsin. And I can see why you wouldn't if you go to Minnesota. Oh. oh. I, see, like, I don't consider that to be any kind of burn at all. <laughs> well, now, how, now, if you were, now, if you were talking about Minnesota economics, I'd be like, mm, I might get a little iffy there. Okay. Yeah. All right. But that's a different deal. But we have another rivalry. You were a reedy. And uh, oh. at the same time you were going I, to read, we now, were going to Lewis now, and Clark. Crosstown now, now, rivals. Hold on a second. You already said correct grammar. I'm going to have to correct your grammar. Unfortunately, for better or for worse, I am a reedy. Oh, that's that's true. Once a yeah. Reedy, yeah. So, yes. so just like... At, just as we are Pios, crosstown rivals. What are you? Pi- Lewis Clark pioneers, <laughs> man. Oh, pioneers. Yeah. I, I was like, yeah, you people do act piously. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, this coming from a I reedy. Just, I just you people to all of Lewis and Clark. <laughs> yeah, you did. 
we won't go there because Reed is is clearly a better school than Lewis and Clark. So we're going to let that one sit there. Congratulations yeah, for yeah. getting into Reed. Uh, we did um, not. We were not able to. Oh. Uh, Thanks, I guess. More 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 introduction for uh, Van. Uh, you got fairly far along the path to getting a PhD. Uh, and I you even two and a half years. Yeah. yeah, and and you did a year at the London School of Economics, which yeah, but that was as an undergrad. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, well, that's cool. I didn't know that was an undergrad. Nice. Yeah. Um, but eventually you decided to go into beer, uh, and you began at the Minnesota Brewing Company in 1995. Yeah. And then uh, spent a long time at various rock bottoms, uh, yeah. starting out in Minneapolis, then in Bethes- Bethesda, Maryland, yep. and finally back here in Portland, Oregon, where Be- you went to college. Beautiful Portland, Oregon. Yeah. Agreed. And um, you were there like tw- nearly 20 years, yeah? Oh, uh, rock bottom? Yeah. 16. 16. And then in 20- Just a lot of rounding up. Yes. <laughs> rounding up on the 10s. It's, it's, it's good enough for a religious studies major. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> uh, and then that brings us to Gigantic, which you founded. Ba-boom. So, yeah. Yeah. Uh, we're delighted to have you here. And um, you have, I think, an interesting kind of approach to. Uh, thinking about the beer industry and I've wanted to have you on here because you and I have had back channel chat a oh, lot yeah, sure, about yeah. Uh, yeah. about beer and brewing and I don't know if you want to start there we have a couple of your beers to drink as we go along uh, it's whatever you want to do all right I do need you to goad me because I'm a little confused about what I think about differently <laughs> that's okay well I I'm just I consider myself just highly opinionated yeah I think let's well let's let's start out with gigantic Sure. Uh, you, you you were a brewer for over sixteen years since you were at Minnesota yep. before yeah, that, yeah, yeah. Uh, and you and Van, uh, Ben and Ben yeah. is also veteran brewer. Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, he'd decided, been in about a decade when we started. So. Yeah. yeah, so you guys had uh, like yeah you old timers. Cool. Yep. yep. Decided to open this brewery, and um, what was your vision, and what were you what were you shooting for there? Well, we didn't. I mean, <clears throat> this story sounds really apocryphal, but it's not. Um, we really. We named the brewery Gigantic because we didn't want to be big. Um, and I don't want to say this is unique because it's not, but it's, I'm going to call it uncommon. Um, we sort of had a vision of how large we wanted the brewery to be from the beginning. Mm-hmm. Um, most breweries kind of start and they're just sort of like, we'll just see where this goes. And uh, so, I mean, you guys have been in a bunch of breweries, you know, like you walk into a lot of small breweries and there's just kind of tanks jammed, higgledy-piggledy sort of everywhere. Mm-hmm. Whereas yeah. if whereas if you walk into our place, you walk in and you're like, there's this nice row of fermenters and there's this nice brew house on one side, debate nice, whatever. <laughs> and then there's a, and then there, we have a packaging hall and it's all like laid out very nice as if we as if we built it that way from the beginning. We, we didn't, we just, we grew into it, but we knew we never wanted to be much bigger than we are we've got about we've got an annual total capacity of about 4800 barrels mm-hmm. if we're you know firing on all eight cylinders all every week so we're doing about <clears throat> i don't know 4500 barrels a year out of cylinder now and that's and realistically that's it's realistically about as as big as we're capable of being we might be able to squeeze 4600 barrels out of there mm-hmm. something like that so um <clears throat> that was always kind of the vision. And um, uh, the other thing was we were originally going to just make one beer year-round, IPA, and then do different beers all the time. And, I mean, the market has changed so... And in 2012, that was kind of a radical move. I remember when you guys launched, uh, Patrick and I talked about that. A lot of 
people talked about that. That was a weird idea that you would only have one flagship. Yeah, back then it was all about having a few, yeah, multiple flagships and just yeah. riding those. Yeah, yeah, and and uh, an Oregon brewer who will remain nameless. <laughs> uh, when I so I got fired from Rock Bottom in January of 2011, and right about that, like Ben and I had already started. My firing process took a couple of weeks. <laughs> <laughs> and Ben was, happened to be in the room uh, uh, when my firing process started. Mm -hmm. uh, we were having meetings, strangely, for Cheers to Belgian Beers. Mm -hmm. uh, pour one out on the curb for PCTBB. <laughs> um, uh, and... Uh, and uh, I kept having to be like, I'm sorry, I have to take this call. And I kept having to leave as I was sort of getting chewed out by my boss and various things. And um, and so when you know, they're like, and I kept coming back all like <laughs> cranky faced and stuff. And they're like, what's wrong? I was like, I'm probably getting fired. And we should point out the reason that you got fired was because there was an ownership change at Rock Bottom. And yeah. there was, so it wasn't that you had, you know, done I, something. Uh, I got I got fired for the havoc reason, which is, um, speaking inappropriately and out of turn. <laughs> and the new owners were less excited guess. about that than the old owners? Uh, ex to put it mildly. Yeah. <laughs> <clears throat> um, so so even before I was fired, Ben was like, we should do something. Okay, so then I got fired, and so then Ben and I started talking. Where was that going? What was the point of this whole thing? Uh, why you decided to be 4,800 barrels, maybe? No, no, no. Oh, why, why you had multiple. Oh, yeah. Right, 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 right. Thank God somebody. Sorry, thank you. This discussion will <laughs> be edited all... for length. Um, <laughs> uh, <clears throat> Technical difficulties. Yeah. <laughs> and, anyway, there was a, there was a, or, so there was a guild meeting. Yeah. And afterwards I ran into a Oregon brewery and he's like, well, so what are you doing? You know, because I was fired. And I was like, oh, we're starting this brewery and we're going to do this. And hilariously, that brewer then... <laughs> Saw Ben like two days two days later, and was like, and no one knew that Ben was involved because uh, yeah. he was still working for Hopbrooks and he didn't want to be public. Right. That brewer came to Ben and was like, "Oh God, Van's an idiot. Can you believe what he's going to do? He's going to do this." And Ben was like, "Ah, oh, it seems like a good idea to me." <laughs> pretty funny. Nice. The ruin of you. <laughs> yeah, pretty funny. But so now, so now we have a few beers that we make all the time. We um, we make IPA, we make Kolsch, um, uh. Those two beers are really the two beers that we make year round. Right. We do make, we have a s series of Imperial IPAs, the ginormous series. Mm -hmm. Those do change all the time. So that's really part of that rotating series. And, um, and we, oh, and we make Sassy Pony all the, all the time too, which is like a pale, juicy pale. Mm -hmm. I don't know. Yeah. It's l below 6% alcohol, therefore I can drink it right. um, kind of beer. So how do you decide the beers you decide uh, to brew? Uh, in the on, on, a, on, a, on a permanent basis? No, no, no. On the oh, on the new the one offs. Yeah. <clears throat> um, What's the process? Man, it's uh, super simple. I mean, frankly, hmm. uh, yeah, yeah. Huh? Weird. You wouldn't have thought that. <laughs> no, I thought you were going to say it's <laughs> really hard to keep coming up with new beers. Uh, that's Ben's job. Uh, oh, okay. Uh, uh, and it's not really his job, just because. I mean, it's. I, I'm just. I've been doing this for. 24 and a half years I've made a lot of beers mm -hmm. and I'm just a lot more interested in process managing brewers training brewers making brewers better um, solving problems I'm much more interested in what I would consider to be uh, 
traditional brewing, and I don't mean traditional brewing like I'm going to make an 1878 pale ale. I mean like what <laughs> brewers do traditionally. Right. Than I am with what I consider to be new new brewing or. Uh, I told you I was going to bring this up. Well, this is I, I was I, I was trying I to th- get into this, and now we're getting. Into I think it, there's so. a huge difference between being a brewer and making beer. Yeah. I consider myself to be a brewer's brewer. I am interested in brewing. I am far more interested in brewing than I am in beer. Mm. Right. So. <clears throat> if you were to say to me, hey, such and such a really good brewery that I like, I, there's any number of them, uh, uh, is, hey, they're tapping a new beer. Are you going to go over there? <laughs> no. <laughs> <laughs> don't care. Like, don't. I just really don't care. Um, but I'm really interested to talk to them about what they're doing and process and all that sort of stuff. Mm. Uh, that that's That's what brewing is. And brewing's about repetition and all that stuff so so fun so the the funny thing about gigantic is we're sort of an unbrewerly brewers brewery right because we make all these new beers all the time so we don't get the repetition do things so so making beer is that kind of is that kind of oh man i had a great idea i'm gonna put lactose and seven pounds of blueberries into a beer per barrel and wonder what's gonna happen <laughs> it's like you're just like okay whatever man you know can you do that twice why would i do it twice and just like, All right, you know. it's like whatever like i just it's just not whatever so the the challenge of gigantic is really being able to use process to drive quality and making a bunch of different beers all the yeah. time. Yeah. Um, and but, you, don't, you don't have a test brewery, so when you do these, you do them? No, we, we run these 15 barrels at a shot. Yeah. Um, and, and, and a lot of times we're running them 45 barrels at a shot. You know, So uh, this beer that I'm gonna, we're going to try today as yet to be released to the market. Um, <clears throat> we'll wait for that in a minute. Um, that, you know, that, that's a malt that's never been used in the world before. Um, brewed at 45 barrels. Boom, let's do this, you know? <laughs> um, but we'll get into that later. Uh, uh, and so, yeah, it, it, it is, it, it's using process to be able to get towards repeatability, even if you're not repeating the same same recipe. I think recipe is really boring. <laughs> I mean, if you, I think if you ask most uh, beer geeks and a lot of the, what is it, 6,000 breweries that have, or 5,500 breweries that have started since we started, <laughs> Good Lord. Wow. Yeah. Uh, so I started brewing in January of 1995. There were, I think, 600 breweries in the country. Yeah. Um, by the next year, I think there were 1,000 or 1,100. Mm-hmm. And then a year later, uh, by 1997, I think there were 1,500. And from 1997 until 2011, there were 1,500, give or take, 100 breweries. Right. Yeah, I've seen that that plateau. <clears throat> and uh, when we started Gigantic, oh my God, everyone was starting breweries. There were 500 more breweries in a year. Right. What kind of dumb shits do that crap? <laughs> <laughs> and and then and now there's 7,500 breweries and counting. Yeah. You know, there've been a thousand breweries a year coming on. So anyway, um, but uh, uh, so yeah. talk talk about the you know you, you're a person who's interested <laughs> in process, and I know that you have. Uh, we haven't got, talked about this, but uh, you have real reverence for traditional styles, mm-hmm. where the 
where where breweries will have been making beers for decades or yeah. or, or longer. That's, that's what real brewers do. Yeah. So, uh, how, how do you uh, you know uh, when you when you have an idea for a new beer, how do you reconcile these two conflicting urges? <laughs> Can I quote Karl Marx? <laughs> <laughs> sure. By all means, we're going to talk about economics too. I thought you went to Minnesota, man. Come on. <laughs> I, I also went to oh, read. We to read. Yeah. <laughs> Baboom. <That's... laughs> and I went to the London School of Economics. There you go. Baboom. Uh, the translation roughly is: um, European Europeans are burdened by the ghosts of their ancestors. Uh-huh. We're not European. We're American. So. <clears throat> to me, new American brewing is using good brewing process and whatnot, and then kind of the unburdened American creativity, where we're, we we don't have to. I, I wasn't I wasn't born in Köln. I didn't learn to brew in Köln. I don't have to brew Kölsch. I love it. We do it, but I'm not forced to. Right? Um, you know, it, it's I'm not in Northern England, and so I don't have to design all my beers to be poured without a sparkler. Mm. Or sorry, with a sparkler. Excuse me. Please forgive me, everyone. That was the worst thing I've ever said. Uh, yeah. <laughs> the camera guy's on your ass now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I, I, sorry. I was so excited to be on the podcast. <laughs> um, but, but you know what I mean? Like, Sarcasm emoji. We're, we're not, <laughs> but we're not, we're not burdened by that sort of stuff. So, so how do you reconcile the two? You use your experience of process and then you know what, American brewers experiment with, I mean, even back in the 90s, as an American brewer, you experiment with so many more different malts and hops and yeast strains than, frankly, every other brewer in the world did. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't, I, I don't think, I mean, please, someone correct me, but I, I think in the 90s, I don't think there was realistically a brewery outside the United States that would say things like, oh, I use seven or eight yeast strains a year uh, and uh, malt front, that's U.S., German, British, and French. Uh, I use hops from, you know, Czech and Germany and England and America. I don't think there's a brewery outside the United States that would say that. Mm-hmm. But that was, that, that was the norm for U.S. breweries, even though we were basically making traditional styles or traditional styles unmoored from their European ancestry, Sierra Nevada Palo, mm-hmm. right? Um, so as an American brewer, your breadth of, of uh, experience with standard raw materials, I think is much greater mm. uh, than, than other brewers up until the last, say, four or five years, maybe. Um, you know, you go to Scandinavia or the Netherlands or, or England, and and they're doing the same things we are, copycats. <laughs> um, yeah, invent your own stuff. Um, just kidding, totally kidding. Um, but but you know that's and so and so the thing is, as as an American brewer, you you have a you have more arrows in your quiver, mm-hmm. and I'm talking about this in the sign of sort of 1996 to say 2012, 13 kind of period. You have more, you have more hours you quiver than really any of the brewers in the world. Right? Mm-hmm. So therefore it's, you can do this. You can riff a lot faster and you can make new beers on the fly. And on top of that, we had to, you know, there was, there were no instructions in the nineties realistically for, I don't know how to make Kulsh. 
You could right. get you could get a yeast strain that said Kulsch on it. But after that, you had to sort of. I mean, I was making Kulsch before I'd ever drank one from Germany. Right. right. Yeah, I think you, you, I think eighties and nineties brewing was was rife with that. People were making yeah. English style beers. They'd never been to England. Right. Yeah. 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 Um, it, to to this day, I will tell you that there are only a couple breweries in this country that I've ever drank the beer and thought, "Oh, that actually tastes English to me." Mm. Yeah. I mean, all, hilariously, hilariously, it, it helps if you have a if you have like a nice uh, Victorian gravity brewery, and not so many of those in the United States. <laughs> it, it it helps it helps if you realize that basically eh, almost all brewing texts are written with respect to international lager production. Right. right. And if you take that and crumple that up and throw that out, and I don't, I'm not talking about bad brewing process. I'm talking about realizing that all those texts are aimed at one kind of beer. Right. right. It's a national tradition, and it's made for <clears throat> brewing a particular kind of beer. Right. Yeah. So to, just to talk about something that everyone was obsessed with in the late 90s, hot side aeration, God, when people talk to me about hot sideration, I laugh at them now. I mean, I laugh at them. <laughs> I'm just like, oh, please, you're going to bring this crap up? <laughs> yeah. And, and then I start walking around our brewery and I'm like, check it out. Check that out. Check this out. Let's go try some beers. Shove it up your ass. <laughs> and basically everything we knew about hops was also wrong because it was made for lager brewing. Yeah. yeah. All, all this all this stuff, you know? I mean, and it's, and so, uh, uh, <laughs> it, it, it's funny to me that in the last, the, there's, look, it, um, as craft brewing has exploded in the last seven to ten years, right? All these breweries that used to be kind of good sized, right. they had these cobbled together breweries where then they've exploded, and everyone went to the fucking Germans to buy their goddamn brew houses. Mm-hmm. Right? Do you know how many American breweries are out there? And we're like, oh, I just paid, and these numbers are not exaggerated. Twenty million dollars <laughs> for someone like. Hoopman to install a brew yeah, house and a, yeah. and, a, and a brewery in them. And then they're like, ah, oh, this is going to be great, blah, blah, blah. And the very first brew, the very first brew, they're like, this hop dosing system doesn't work. It won't fit, <laughs> it won't fit enough hops in there. And they have to do things like, they have to do things like disconnect the safety switches on like the kettle so they can put enough hops in the beer. Right. Why'd you buy from the Germans? <laughs> Yeah. Uh, Vance, I have a question. Do you think as a brewer, uh, the experience brewing so many different styles of beer makes you understand your brew house and brewery better than, say, a European would? Does that make sense? Yeah, it does. That's a, that's a, really, that's a really good question. Um, I would say yes and no. Mm-hmm. I would say that, uh, say, someone working at a traditional brewery um, I would say that they would know the nuances of their brewery mm-hmm. better. Yeah. And we know the flexibility right. of our brewery better. Mm-hmm. And um, those are two very, very different things. Yeah. Um, uh, you know, the, the nuances are what allow British brewers to... There used to be this great book. You can probably get it somewhere. Um, Roger Protz's, um it's called something like the Complete Book of Cask Ale or something like that. Mm. He used to get, he used to publish it maybe every couple of years. Mm. I have a copy from maybe 1999 or mm. something like that, and it's got every brewery in Britain that makes cask beer, right? <clears throat> and it lists every beer that they make, and for a lot of them, it lists the recipe. Uh-huh. And so you can go through these breweries and you can be like, 
holy shit, like Hook Norton literally has four malts in-house. Right. right. And three hops. Right. Yeah. And they're making five or six beers. Yeah. You know, that are distinct. And a lot of that is because they know how to manipulate their yeast and they know how to manipulate, you know, in, in a very nuanced, specific way. Yeah. American brewers are kind of, I don't, when I say taking a sledgehammer to things, um, I don't mean that the that the results are crude, but like I'm a car guy, right? When you're setting up your car for racing and mm-hmm. you're trying to dial in your tire pressures, you don't you don't go to the test day and say, okay, right now I'm running 40 pounds of air pressure in the front and 40 in the back. Okay, let's see what happens if I run 39 in front and 40 in the back. No, you go out there and you go, I'm going to run 30 in the front and 40 in the back and see what that, you make big changes to see what happens. Right. And then you dial back in from there. And that's and that's sort of what American brewers do when we're trying to figure out how to use our brewing systems. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Whereas like, you know, a German or a British brewer, they... They already know when they go from 40 to 39 to 41 or whatever, and right. they, they're using that yeah. because they've got a lot of experience with that brew house, very, making very similar, very, very, you know, yep. narrow beers kind of yep. things like that. That was it. And, and the other thing is they would never, I don't think most of those breweries would ever think about using their brew house in a different way. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. Well, this seems like a great time to uh, get into our first beer because, Let's drink beer. yeah, it, it this is a beer. <laughs> this is a beer that's more about process than ingredient, and uh, it's a beer you must have I made. Think all- I think it's weirdly about both. Both. Yeah, I do because I'm American. So this this is this is our Kolsch, and we've been making Kolsch on and off for maybe four years. I've been making Kolsch since the '90s. Um, uh, but this beer we've had to kind of continually tinker with to get it where we want it to be. Um, and the tinkering is a little bit more strangely about raw materials okay, uh, than anything else. Um, so uh, the recipe's like really simple. There's nothing all that interesting about it. Yeah. Um, except for the fact that there is, um, thank you. There's a, do you need another glass? Oh, we got one. We'll we'll share this one. It's fine. Oh, you crazy guys! Um, <laughs> you didn't even want to pour it out, so we're all being fancy over here. Yeah. Oh, you mean I wanted to inject it into my veins? Well, yeah, I don't know. You, you were like, we don't we don't need any glasses when we got in. Oh, that oh, studio. Oh, 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 right, 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 right. Yeah, drink it out of the bottle. Yeah. <laughs> that would probably be fresher. <laughs> There's an inside joke, joke yeah. and some of you are probably sitting outside right now, so we can't tell you about yeah. the joke. Sorry about that. It's an in, it's an inside joke. Good beer's a little stale. Um, yeah. Mm. But um, to get the malt character where where we wanted it to be, we ended up having to combine two base malts. Mm-hmm. And that's really just mm-hmm. because um, we started off with Vireman malt, and Vireman makes beautiful malt. But one of the one of the problems with Vireman malt, it's not really a problem, but an issue with Vireman malt is it has a very distinct it signature. It tastes like Vireman malt. It's yeah. very, it's very <laughs> signature. It's the taste of American mm-hmm. Pilsner, really. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, so we really wanted to back that off. So we blended a different German malt in there to right. kind of to kind of back that off. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, uh, for, for us, the real key to, to this beer, strangely, is uh, it start. Look at Gigantic, we're, we're very serious about not cutting corners, especially on the expense side. Mm-hmm. But I'm a, I'm a brewer, I'm a, I'm a brewer's brewer. And so if I can reduce cost through process or something like that, I would because breweries are businesses. Yeah. 
Uh, they've always been businesses. And if you don't want it to be business, go start a winery. Um, <clears throat> so, uh, uh, in we don't make this beer enough that we can move yeast from tank to tank. Mm -hmm. We brew this beer maybe nine or 10 times a year. Mm -hmm. Okay. Um, maybe up to 11. Um, and uh, so, so yeast health and condition is, is crucial to Kolsch. Mm -hmm. yeah. So one way to do it is you just spend a lot of money and you buy pitchable quantities and you run them in. And we realized that if we did that, we'd be like, oh man, this, the cost on this beer would be kind of a little bit higher than we'd want Right to be able to get it to the price point we wanted to mm -hmm. be, um, and that sounds real businessy. Again, breweries are businesses. Deal with it. <laughs> yeah, and I, I really want to talk about yeah, that. So yeah, we'll, we'll come to that in that. just in a minute. Um, so uh, uh, Scott Guckel, our head brewer, and I, we both came from rock bottom, where cost concerns were always a concern. Right. So we had been taught from the beginning on how to propagate yeast up for much smaller amounts. And I'm not talking like smack pack amounts. I'm right. just talking about like <laughs> the, the, di the yeah. difference between purchasing a liter of yeast yeah. and purchasing enough yeast to pitch into 45 barrels is enormous. Right. You're talking about it like a $900 difference. Mm -hmm. But we know how to do that. We know how to use smaller tanks to prop yeast up. And we have a method that's repeatable enough that we can get the ester profile that we want mm -hmm. out of Kolsch. Not too much, not too little. Because the beauty of Kolsch to me, you on your, on your, I never read Facebook, on your Facebook page. Um, <laughs> yes. I, I hate the internet. I love it and I hate it. But I mainly hate social media. Um, <clears throat> uh, I just can't be bothered. just don't care. Um but you had, you know, you asked people, is Pilsner the hardest beer to brew? Yeah. Do you know Jeff Bagby? Uh, of, of Jeff, of, of, and I think I met him briefly yeah. once, but yeah. Super great guy. Turns out that Jeff Bagby and I are of the same opinion. Pilsner, <laughs> brew Kolsch. <laughs> try, try brewing Kolsch. Because, uh, uh, one, everyone, everyone acts like brewing lager is the most difficult thing in the world. Yeah, you have to have your procedure right. Yeah. But I will repeat what I said earlier. Every brewing text in the world <laughs> right. <you> is written <laughs> how to make that beer. Yeah. Right? So, I mean, there's no mystery. It's like at the at the, at the Oregon Brewers Guild annual meeting just this last year, um, they always have like some kind of technical workshops before, which are great. Yeah. Uh, one of them was sort of like uh, a panel discussion about how to brew lager beer. And the place was like jammed. I was just like, <laughs> it's just like, fuck, go buy Kunza. It'll cost you 150 fucking dollars and then you'll have it for the rest of your life. Right. What you, I don't get it. You guys are the ones with the specialized knowledge. Right. How to make American IPA and do all that kind of stuff with it. The Germans can't figure that out if you put a gun to their head. Totally. They have no clue. <laughs> I like to tell the story about being in Czech. What do they call it now? Czechia? Czechia. Czech, whatever. I just call it Czech. Um, <laughs> no, no offense to the country. They don't get mad at me. Um, but being, being in, in Czech and uh, being told to go to this, this beer bar, the Prague Beer Museum, and I was mm -hmm. like, oh, oh yeah. God, don't, yeah. don't make me go there. I hate these kind of places. They're like, no, you have to go. <laughs> All right, fine, whatever. And Emily and I walk in, and my wife and I walk in, and... Uh, <laughs> We're like, holy crap, we're the oldest people here. And we're like, <laughs> we're like 45 at the time. We're just like, look at all these young, incredibly attractive Czech people. 
And uh, bartender or the server comes up and they've got this big kind of book of beers. And mm-hmm. I was like, I want to try this one. Did I you just... go there? We, I, I, I've been there. <clears throat> uh, don't think I went to that one, but I went to another one of your recommendations, yeah. a similar place. And, and I pointed to this loggers, you know, this Svetli Lejak. And I was like, I want to try this. And the guy was like, no, nah, you, you don't want that. And I was like, okay, what do I want? And he goes, well, what do you like to drink? And I looked at him and I said, look, man, I'm an American brewer. Like, I've been brewing professionally for 20 years, you know, so what, what should I drink? He goes, oh, oh and, I, and I think I might have said, we make, I, you know, from the West Coast, we make a lot of IPAs. He goes, oh, do you want to try Czech IPAs? Yeah, I, see, <laughs> I, I saw where this conversation, you gave him all the wrong information. Yeah, yeah. No, but it was, no, but it was super interesting because uh, he's, he's like, we have a flight of Czech IPAs. And I was like, ah, oh, cool. Great. And, he, and, and there were six of them. And I mean, five of them were fucking garbage. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It's hard to brew. Yeah, well, you know, if, if you, you if, 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 if if you taste a, if you taste an American IPA and try to figure out how to brew that on your own, very hard to do. If, yeah, mm-hmm. if you're if you haven't been brought up in American brewing, right? Like we, like American brewers have been around for long. Like we can brew them with our eyes closed. Yeah, and everyone acts like, oh, there's no skill in that. You're like, uh, it turns out there is. <laughs> yeah. yeah, you know. Yeah. Um. Anyway, yeah. so this Kolsch, um, yeah, you're a you're a Kolsch fan, huge fan, and uh, you've been to Colonia. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So. It's a pretty broad style. Yeah, I like to say I like to say it's a small ballpark, uh-huh. but it's a ballpark. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So what were you shooting for here? What was your kind of, what's your inspiration? What do you, which ones I, do you like? Uh, I personally really like um, Fru and Gaffo. Uh-huh. Those, yeah. those are the two that I really like um, because they're, to me, the two that have the best balance really between hop, malt, and yeast. Mm-hmm. And that's the thing about Kolsch. It's the yeast, mm-hmm. right? That 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 people will people will say this stuff drives me batshit crazy. Like, oh, Kolsch is a hybrid ale lager style. Blah. And you're like, what the hell does that mean, right? It's I mean, it's got ester in it. If mm-hmm. Kolsch doesn't have ester to me, it's missing something, yeah. right? Mm-hmm. But you need you need enough hop. You need enough. And then we've recently, just recently, like two batches ago, we actually. Well, frankly, I hadn't been to Cologne in a long time, and at Copenhagen at the Mikkeler, uh Copenhagen Beer Celebration, it was fucking great. They had Goffel there. Nice. Like you know, at, at Copenhagen Celebration, it's all these like tiny little breweries that make you know eight hundred barrels of beer a year or whatever, and everyone's all like, ah, I have to run to get Balka Riders beer and all this sort of stuff. And then there's Goffel, and I just <laughs> kept going back to the Goffel place. It's been like Kölschbitte, Kölschbitte, Kölschbitte. Have you tried this? No, I haven't tried. Who's this? Other? No, I don't give a shit. Kölsch, Kölsch. Okay. Um, and uh, I I'd forgotten how bitter bitter it's, Goffel it's a, is. It's definitely the really a bitter one. Yeah, it's a really bitter one. And uh, and uh, I came back and I was like, "Huh, ours needs to be slightly more bitter." This is bitterer than I remember, so I'm happy yeah, to hear it, that. Yeah, it's, it's it's and it's not a lot; it's a touch. No. Um, but then we we for added a, for a coal is pretty bitter though. Yeah, but we we added about but nothing like awful. We've Patrick and I have. Just, just hammered. Yeah, we just we just hammered this beer. <laughs> yeah, down. pretty much. That's okay. I got like got five. More. I got, got five more. more of them. Yeah. <laughs> Cool. You're supposed to drink it. That's right. Um, it's a hot but, day. But Perfect we, day. Um, uh, and we put about ten percent more finishing hops in it. Mm-hmm. And and again, uh, 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 unbound by the uh, you know uh, uh, spirits of our ancestors. This is not a three hop edition beer. It's a two hop edition beer. Mm-hmm. I don't need to act like I'm in Cologne. I don't give a shit. I can get to flavor anywhere I want. So it's really just a bittering edition and a final edition. Mm-hmm. And that allows me to kind of push the aroma a little bit more. And so I, I do think of this as uh, a traditional, a, 
approach to the style mm-hmm. in terms of what what it tastes like. And uh, the dudes at Gaffel were actually like, oh, it should be more bitter. <laughs> Hilarious, it's Gaffel. <laughs> uh, and they're like, the finish should be a little crisper. And that's one reason why I pushed it a little bit more. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, but I don't think you would find that. Uh, the closest to this you would get in Cone is uh, Scion, in uh, my opinion. Okay, okay. That's the one with the most hop finish to it. But we're in the Pacific Northwest. Right. And so I wanted to push it just a little bit. So, I mean, like, mm-hmm. I think we're like, I think this beer is like just, I don't mean a home run like I'm better than the coach. I just mean just outside. It's called a foul tip, right? It's in the ballpark, but it's slightly outside the field of play because we put a little bit more hop in the finish mm-hmm. than they would. Mm-hmm. That's okay, right? I'm and, okay with that. and if a brewery did that in uh, Cologne, it would just change the what the ball the, the shape of the ballpark. Right? It yeah, would be yeah, totally yeah, 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 right, right. Yeah, yeah. In, yeah. In Cologne, they would just be like, "That's not a foul tip anymore. We just." Yeah. Allowed you to play that ball. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That's yeah. Enough. It would be it, the, the example would go from baseball, they would just change it up to cricket. Right. It'd be fine. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, I'm really interested. Periodically, you'll uh, back channel me after I write something and, and talk about uh, the business of brewing, the actual business yeah. of, of operating a brewery. Yeah. And uh, how little focus there is uh, on. Uh, you know, from beer fans, but also from prospective brewers. And actually the reason that uh, I was reminded to invite you this time, even though you've been on the agenda for months, uh, is because Patrick said, we should have somebody on who will talk about um, disabusing young brewers of the fantasy, I don't know how you put it, of of what what it's like to, you know, separating the fantasy from the reality of being you know a professional my, brewer. You know what my sick, sick pleasures is? <laughs> and, I, and, and it has been for a long time. And I thought Van's the guy to do that. So. Seeing how fast I can talk people out of wanting to be a brewer. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I, I'm not. I'm not. I am not joking. I yeah. have been doing this since the '90s. Yeah. The the perception of what we do is sort of radically different than the reality of it. Yeah. Um, although, although. All right, I'm finishing it. <sighs> okay. Let me let me Bastard. be let me be very clear about this. Everything. Oh, my hero. There you go. By the way, I, I just have to say, I'm, this is one of my all-time favorite beers. I love this beer. Oh, wow. Thank yeah. you. It's, I had one last night, in fact. So, Thank you. And before I even keyed in that you were coming. So. Thank you. Yeah. Um, there's a brewery in town who, if you really want to know, I'll tell you. Um, I just don't want to sound obnoxious when I say this. That wanted to make Kolsch, and so they tried every Kolsch available to them, including all the ones from Germany that they could get. Mm-hmm. And they came back to me and they said, just so you know, yours is the best Kolsch. Nice. Yeah. What, I, what I particularly like about it, and I was really interested because I didn't know this about the malt, is, is the uh, the malt character that comes through yeah. at, the, at the bottom end is really Yeah, really nice. thank you. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that was just, that took, I mean, that took some experimentation. Mm-hmm. And that was something that we had to do, with, again, like I said, with raw material choice and not with, yeah. not with process. Right. All right, so go ahead. Business of beer, disabusing people from. <laughs> okay, so everything that I'm, why you should not be a brewer. Yeah, every, be a brewer. Well, well, and, well and everything I'm about to say, and, and and again, the industry's changed radically. This is for this is for brewers, brewing. This is not for. I open up a place making 300 barrels a year and I right. make beer. Right. Yeah. I I I, I told. I don't mean to insult anyone who's small. Mm-hmm. I am sure that there are very well. My friend Mark Youngquist, plug at Dolores River Brewing in extreme southwest Colorado. Plug. Um, do you know Mark? Nope. I think you went to school with him. Um, Mark, I po- think... Possible. Mark, uh, Mark graduated from LNC in maybe 84. 
Oh no, uh, we we're, started in '86. Yeah, okay, we're, we're youngsters. Okay, okay. Yeah, um, <laughs> yeah we're youngsters. Maybe he graduated in '86. Anyway, he's very close to you guys. Anyway, okay. and Mark, Mark is one of the early Bridgeport guys. Okay. And so he's been a professional brewer for a very long since the '80s for a very long time. And and you know, and, and Mark does 350 barrels a year, but I would never, ever, ever say that Mark isn't brewing. Mm-hmm. I don't think. I think the number of times Mark has quote made beer in his life is very very few he is a very traditional very accomplished very very good brewer so that's mm-hmm. not to say that size equals making beer versus but yeah. the fact of the matter is is most people doing that are making beer right they're making beer so the thing about brewing is it's wildly different than what people think it is and in order to get so how explain well <clears throat> how do they think it is and what is it well what's your day look like what's man what's my day look like Look, my day is super boring. Um, I, here's here's the best way I can describe this. Even when I was at Rock Bottom and I was in charge of all brewing and whatnot. I mean, not that I'm not in charge of... I am in charge of brewing at Gigantic, but I got four guys working under me versus right. at Rock Bottom where I have one. So I was doing probably 45% of the workload at Rock Bottom. I do probably 10% of the workload at, at Gigantic. Probably less, probably five. Um, so... Uh, I used to explain it like the homebrew club would come in when I was at rock bottom and I'd be like, you have to understand that I make about 24, 25 beers a year. Again, this is at a brew pub. Mm-hmm. And I would be like, I'd be like, I spend maybe an hour and a half to two hours a year on recipe development. Right. <laughs> they're yeah. like, they're like, how can that be? I'd be like, watch here. Here's a recipe for a pale ale. Bump. <laughs> just, here's the recipe. You want another one? Here's another one. Like that's not, that's not what you do. Yeah. You spend an enormous amount of time um, cleaning and measuring, yeah. and you know that's that's what you do. You find uh, you spend an you know we have a bottling line. Call us old and decrepit because we're not in cans like all the cool kids. But. You're old and decrepit. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, You're younger than us, but that's not saying not, a lot. By not, by not a time. No, by yeah. two years. I think. Right? Yeah, by two years. Yeah. <laughs> uh, <laughs> back in my day. Um, <laughs> Uh, but, uh, you know, you spend a lot of time on, uh, mechanical and electrical things. Mm -hmm. People don't understand that. And that, especially as you're running a small brewery, if you can't do that, you're spending a lot of money. So when Ben and I started, we bought a glycol chiller. It's one of the most crucial pieces of equipment in the entire brewery. We bought it used from Hopworks. They had bought it used. (laughs) Um, uh, that thing, uh, ran until about a month and a half ago. Okay. Uh, when I swapped it out, why did I swap it out? Because I'd realized that I was probably spending 1500 to 2,500 bucks a year on maintenance on that thing. Um, it was, I finally looked at the build date and the build date was like 1994. It was like longer than I've been brewing. That thing's been in operation. (laughs) And, um, you know, we saved a lot of money doing that. But it also like requires a lot of knowledge just from experience to know things like, okay, hold on. It's an old chiller. Here's the way you get that thing to limp through. Right. 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 And then, and then mm-hmm. we bought a new chiller and then the new chiller company was like, do you want install? No, <laughs> I ain't paying for that. Right. Yeah. B- because I know how to do the, I won't do, I will do the electrical, but I also know that's 480 volt and I know that I need to have someone to come else and do it. Right, mm-hmm. okay. but if but if I didn't have to change the the uh, the conduit, 
wired that thing myself. <laughs> you know, I did all the plumbing myself. I rented the boom fork and we placed it ourselves. Mm-hmm. I ain't paying. Uh-huh. Um, I've got a really nice bodily line. I have never had the professional maintenance people come in and deal with it because I'm going to do it. <laughs> right. And I'm not saying that we do a bad job. It's just I'm mechanically adept and finally hired my fantasy hire guy. I hired a guy who's an ASC certified master mechanic. Mm, nice. You know, it's like when you're running, here's the thing, when you're running a brewery, who's the most more important hire? The guy who's an ASC certified master mechanic who can rebuild Audi transmissions? Right. Or the guy who you're like, wow, your homebrew is good. I don't give a f- how good your homebrew is. <laughs> <laughs> like, no offense to anyone. It's a f- hobby yeah i mean it'd be like if you took one of the cars that i've built for racing and like acted like toyota would hire me for it they don't give a (laughs) (laughs) wow you built a super fast 1987 toyota corolla i'm gonna make you an automotive engineer yeah yeah it's not the same job yeah Yeah. i think i I don't think that's uh a sentiment that comes up enough that uh the the but that being able to make a five-gallon batch of beer is different than making a 45-barrel ba- batch of beer. First question I always ask, how fast can you change a pump seal? <laughs> yeah. And then usually they look at me with, Why, what's a pump seal? Totally. Okay, you have a problem. <laughs> Be- because, because when a pump seal fails, you need to change it now. Right. Yeah. Not when you're done, not tomorrow, now. Right. Because you're f***ing up for all the time that that is leaking. Yeah. So how fast can you do it? Because if you don't do it fast enough, you have just changed this beer and your job is to make beer the same. Right. That's what brewing is. Uh-huh. Making beer the same, repeatability, yeah. knowing how to manipulate stuff to get repeatability, that's brewing. It sounds, it's, it may be really unsexy, but that's why it's a f- profession. Yeah. <laughs> what about the It's biz- why it's not a goddamn hobby. Yeah. So what about the business side? I should, I should mention um, this that is. Bro- I swear a lot. This is broadcast on the radio, so uh, later. it is. Yes, so no, just Will's got his finger on the beat. He, don't he, worry he, about it, man. <laughs> he does. But, is, uh, I'm going to set a record. So that's that's why that's why, folks. There's been five minutes of silence. <laughs> <laughs> don't worry. The children listen Everything, to this. Everything's good. Yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, yeah. What about the business this, side? So this I conversation re- has been edited for length and language. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> So I, I understand your point uh, about the mechan- mechanical yeah, stuff, but yeah. what about business acumen? Yeah. So look, um, you have to realize that like th- these are these are businesses. Yeah. If you don't operate it as a business, you are not going to continue to be operating. Mm. Um, and th- that doesn't, and, and that also means that there is a sort of risk involved that if you make the wrong decision, you could really have your business on the line. Mm. Uh, you know, the the Commons is really is is really the brewery that that puts that to the test. Uh, the Commons was a great brewery, mm-hmm. and um, Sean's a great brewer, and Mike Wright is a friend of mine, mm-hmm. and and he's a smart guy. Mm-hmm. And I don't think those guys would really disagree with me when my assessment that well, they sort of misjudged how large the market for the kind of beer they're making was, and they made right. some, in, and and that's fine. But they made some very large investments banking on that, right? And that's and that's what really put that brewery under. Yeah. And every beer geek needs to understand that it's not about how good the beer is, right? I think if you open your eyes and and pay attention, you'll realize that there are 
hundreds at this point of breweries out there whose beer is fair to Midland at best mm -hmm. who are running very successful businesses. Yeah. This whole concept that, well, at this stage in the game, I mean, if the beer's not really good, you're done for. Total, total crock. Yeah. It's a crock. You know? And you have to you have to sell what people want to buy. And to yeah, your point about com the commons. Yeah, and you have to sell what, what people want to buy. Or at least you have to match the amount you're making and your business model with the amount that you can sell. When the commons was at their original location making whatever it was, seven or ten barrels at a pop. Right, seven. And and yeah, and, and making, you know, eight or nine hundred barrels a year, they had a successful business. It was mm -hmm. small, mm -hmm. but it was a successful business. Yeah, we had Alex Ganum on earlier and yeah. he wants to He's be a, yeah, he wants to be like a thousand, twelve hundred barrel brewery and mm -hmm. and he's that's he's all he fine. Wants to be. He's fine yeah. with that, yeah. you know. And and it's and it's it's understanding um, that you have to have a business model that can get you the revenue that can pay your debt, and uh, and allow you to live, you know. Um, all right. While you were talking about the business, I went back to the beer. Uh oh, I poured out. Uh, the he didn't. He poured it into a glass, making it less fresh. It is not so fresh anymore. <laughs> yeah, it's less. I defreshed the beer. Yeah, and the beer that I have in front of me it's is from a called bottle too. By the way, uh, Uberfest. <laughs> God, how gauche! <laughs> I know it's really old timey. Yeah, I got grandpa on his old time beer yeah, here. Can you believe that? It's like some more cultural. <laughs> but idea. it's actually. Um, uh, so you and I are both uh, interested in beer history, and mm -hmm. my guess is this is um, something like uh, an Oktoberfest. This is an Oktoberfest sure. beer, or a yeah. uh, kind of a riff on that. Yeah, this is what Oktoberfest would have looked like in probably the night, maybe 1950s or something before yeah, it really yeah, started sure. to to become lighter and lighter and lighter. Yeah, yeah, yeah. This thing is gorgeous. Yeah, it's, uh, I don't know what color you call it. You call it garnet copper copper. Sure. I don't, well, I'm colorblind, so. <laughs> no, no, no one. No I would one, second copper. Yeah. No one is brown colorblind. <laughs> <laughs> no, but it, it falls into that. Um, if it's a, a red, it's hard. So yeah, red. The, it's the, not the, quite the, red. The number, the number, no. the, the the amount of redness it has, I can't judge. Yeah. Oh, right, right, right. I get it. But I second the gorgeous. Yeah. 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 It's and it's quite dark. I mean, if you so this is a version of a of Oktoberfest, and and modern Oktoberfests are very right. pale. They're like yeah, barely darker pale. than a Hellas. Yeah, mm -hmm. super pale. Um, and this is this is kind of strong. It's like over seven percent alcohol too. Ooh. Yeah. So tell us uh, the backstory on this beer. So um, uh, we have become friends with the guys at uh, Austin Beer Garden Brewing, mm -hmm. which makes absolutely outstanding lagers. Mm -hmm. And uh, we've been friends with them for I don't know four, five, six years or something like that. Mm -hmm. Kind of seeing each other at, you know, whatever, Hop Harvest, JBF, that kind of stuff. Right. And uh, so we wanted to do a collaboration with them and we invited them to do it. And, uh, you know, the invited brewer usually gets to make the call about what, hey, what do you want to do? And they said, hey, well, we make this Uberfest beer. <clears throat> it's like an Oktoberfest, but stronger. Let's do, let's do that. But like portland water and we'll use your hops and this that and the other blah blah blah, blah. and we said cool uh so how do you guys do that and they're like well it's like a really it's like 70 percent vanna malt and maybe something for color i can't remember and you know maybe some munich or something like that i, I can't remember exactly but we used i want to say three malts mm -hmm. and um we had done a little bit of work with uh skagit valley malting up in the skagit valley plug um and uh they make uh beautiful malt um and they are a very small facility so their <clears throat> minimum throw it's a technical term for malt is a shocking 400 pounds mm. that's like their test wow. batch 
size. A great and, western is like a ton, right? So yeah. this is a oh, great western's a minimum throw. Yeah. No, their minimum throw is uh, is way way bigger than that. Is that okay? I, I mean, <laughs> great western's minimum throw is something like. Uh, it's like ninety six tons. Ninety six tons. Yeah, sorry, or something like that. It's it's, it's again like, religious studies major. Right, right, right. Yeah, it's, like, it's like four. It's like four silophils. The maths are hard for wow. me. Yeah, yeah. I think it's like four silophils. Yeah, is, yeah. I think Great Western's minimum throw. And Great Western is a reasonably small facility in uh-huh. the scope of the world. Uh-huh. Um, but uh, Skagit can do a four hundred pound throw on their trial size, and then when you move up into their bigger size, they can do a throw as small as. Uh, four to six thousand pounds so we wanted to do 45 barrels of this beer we were like oh man we'll take like 3,800 pounds or 3,900 pounds they're like yeah we'll do that for you and so we we developed a custom malt for this beer so this is a single malt beer oh my god it's a smash beer i didn't even realize that because we don't think that way yeah uh it's single malt and single hop the hop weirdly is willamette nice Classic, because a classic uh because no. Willamette is strangely very close to Tetanang. Uh-huh. Right? In terms of flavor character, especially when you use it in a lager and not high percentages. Um and uh the malt is a malt that that I wrote out the spec for, checked it with the ABGB guys, and they were like, Yeah, that sounds awesome. And it's called Super Vienna now. It's a Vienna malt at about ten lava bond. And I know some of you are gonna be like, That's Munich malt. <laughs> That's what I said. <laughs> it's not Munich malt. You said it just like that, too. Yeah. Munich malt is a wet steep malt, and uh, Vienna is a high dry. Um, and so that has to do with how the malt is how the malt is dried and at what temperatures. So Munich malt is dried slower, longer. It stays wet for much, much longer. Vienna malt is dried rapidly higher temperature drop boof get it up there um and so this malt is essentially using high dry to go as far as you can mm-hmm. relatively with with color so it's it's not munichy it's it's vienna and these give you different flavor profiles yeah they give you you know vienna is toastier and right. munich is mm-hmm. breadier right they're not they're not the same fruitier almost it's yeah a, a kind of sweetness this is more dry and toasty yeah 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 yeah, yeah. yeah because it's a high dry Mm-hmm. Right, it's, a, it's more of a toasting than it is this kind of almost. I mean, you know, Munich malt is clearly not a you know caramelized or crystallized malt or right. anything like that. But you know, it's closer to that spectrum. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. If you're going to have a spectrum of how malt is made, interesting. So uh, it's quite a remarkable beer. Um, Thank you. Uh-huh. Yeah. The thanks to the ABGB guys. The <laughs> thanks to Skagit Valley Malting. Plug plug. You guys, you guys do some really cool stuff with malt, and I think this is a good. I'm glad you brought this. this is a Thank nice, you. We, uh, we try. Yeah, it's a malt nice is, example of. It's funny because you know there's been a, a lot of new maltsters in the country, mm-hmm. and it's funny because the maltsters are all like, "Oh man, malt is going to be the new hops." I hate to tell you it's not. <laughs> um, but but it's way – it gives people a much bigger palate than yeah. American Two-Row, which doesn't even yeah. – we don't know what kind of uh, barley it is. I mean, it's, Yeah, we do. It's Copeland and Merritt. Yeah, it's true. But, I mean, it's <laughs> those are those are the most generic sugar you – know, like Totally, they're, yeah, they're, yeah. They're not, they're not you know, very interesting. And, no, no, no. no and the, the, and no. the malting profile is not very interesting. No. So all of this is just designed to create – not very interesting beer, right? So, yeah. well, well, the, here's the way I think of it. I think of those those American malts as um, as being transparent, and I think they've had a huge effect. It's a on gracious how, and diplomatic word. Well, let me let me explain it for a second. I think they've had a huge effect on how American small brewers make beer, mm-hmm. because 
because those kind of well, it was originally Clogus, you know, back when I started, and then it's become yeah Copeland, Merritt Copeland. And there's a few other things in there, right? Um, uh, uh, because those malts have very clean and neutral flavors, it allows those malts give a really weird plug to a friend of mine who's never going to listen to this. His name's Rick Hammond. He's the guy who hired me to rock bottom. He hasn't brewed for professionally for like 20 years. Um, he's still a good friend of mine. He used to always say, the base malt is like the canvas. And then I use specialty malts to paint on the colors and the flavors that I want. And that really is how American brewers yep. sort of think yeah, about yeah, that, yeah. right? Absolutely. The totally. canvas yep. gets completely covered up in a painting, yeah. right. but I need it there, right? To make yep. my painting, right? And so I think there's something really useful about a malt like that when you're trying to be very, when you're unburdened by the ghosts of our forefathers uh, and you have a big quiver of arrows and you can pick and choose all these specialty malts you want to get to where you want it to be. Yep. Right. So that allows you, I and mean, that's, that's why when you look at American recipes, like a lot of them, you're like, what? Man, why you got like four or five malts in there? What are you doing? <laughs> but a beer, for example, if we were looking uh, at a recipe for somebody was going to try to make a, 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 a something like this, something like this in 1990, they would have used American two roll, probably some caramel malt, right? Like yeah, oh, oh, of, no, not probably. <laughs> Definitely. Yeah. Fair amount of caramel malt. They uh, might use like a 1% of something like a black malt yeah. or something like that or a chocolate malt, probably. And they would have ended up with a beer that tasted remarkably different. Might have had the same color. Yeah. And, yeah. you know, it might have had the characteristic of a lager, but it would have tasted yeah. very different. Yeah. So I I commend you for experimenting with a single uh, malt variety that really communicates to the drinker well, well, what, what this well, malt tastes like. Well, and here's the thing. You want to guess what barley this is? Um, well, I know that uh, Skagit uses particular barleys that were developed by WSU, but I don't remember what they're called. So is it one of those? No. Okay. <laughs> then I'm not going to... I got Copeland. I, I, I got Copeland. Nothing. It's kind of, I, oh, say, I know the answer to this it's because nice. the way he's setting it up. Yeah. It's Copeland. This is this is a hundred percent Copeland. Nice. It's it's just that. So, I firmly believe from various things that I've tasted in my life uh-huh. that um, barley variety does matter. Yeah. Maltster matters more. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And this um, is a. And this is a, this is an a really interestingly malted. E- excellent example of yeah. that because this is Copeland. Yeah, I want to make sure because I'm not sure we plugged it. Completely. This is Gigantic's Uberfest. Yeah. Look for it soon. Yeah, I'm gonna within a week or two. All right. Uh, so one of your finer look for it now <laughs> when this comes not, out. Not I don't right, know. Right, yeah, right, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> There's not a ton of it. Uh, we made 45 barrels of it. Oh, get um, you to the beer yeah. store now and, and buy yeah. all you can. And when you release a beer like this, how much of it goes into the bottle versus on draft uh, at the pub and around town? For something like this, it's out of 45 barrels. It's a uh, man. I want to say this is about. 30 barrels in bottle okay, and about 15 barrels in draft. And we tend to keep about six or eight barrels for the pub. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Something like that. Cool. Yeah. Something like that. Uh, so I have to ask this question. Yeah. You guys should talk econ. Somehow. Well, yes. This is the question I was going to ask. Yeah. So, <laughs> Wait, hold on, Patrick. Forgive me for this. What kind of economics do you do? Uh, development. International development oh, economics. Oh, cool. Yeah. yeah, cool. Yeah. So I have to ask. Uh, he's, he's sort of a hippie, his damn self. Your economics training. Uh-huh. Has it served you well in the beer? What what caused the the rift in economics that led you to? Okay, two questions. <laughs> yeah. Okay, the first one is uh, I will tell you this. 
The most important thing I learned in grad school, mm-hmm. hands hands down, Marcel Ket Richter, our instru- Dr. Richter, was our instructor for uh, the first term of microeconomic theory at the graduate level. Yep. And, uh, you know, it was all preference theory and all mm-hmm. that kind of stuff, right? And uh, completely outside of all that, one day he looked at us and he said, let me tell you all something. Successful academics are not the people that get the right answer to questions. They are people that ask the right questions. Mm-hmm. And I, I looked at that and I just wrote it down in my book really quick. I was like, <laughs> holy shit, this is clearly... And it wasn't because he said successful academics. It wasn't because of that. It was because I realized that that statement was much, much bigger than economics. Right. Yep. And to this day, I still believe that to be the case, that people are successful because they ask the right question. Getting the right answer is fucking boring, mm-hmm. right? You know, ooh, do you know what two plus two is? Ooh, four. Oh, my God, I accomplished something today, right? But if you ask the right question, that drives you in the right direction. Mm-hmm. Far more important than everything else, right? So there you go. That's the most important thing I learned. Um, Now, what led me to leave economics? Yeah. Okay. And join the world of brewing. Okay. So here's here's what led me to leave economics is um, I went to Minnesota. And for those of you who don't know, which is everyone listening to this except except for Patrick. (laughs) (laughs) Patrick has fanboys or fan people and they, you know. Oh, well, if there's other economists out there, they will, they will, you'd be surprised. They will understand (laughs) what, what Minnesota is. Minnesota is known to be the most mathematical economics program quite literally in the world. Mm -hmm. It is a math program thinly veiled as an economics program. Mm -hmm. Uh, And, uh, that has some benefits and it has some negatives. And please remember, I was in graduate school from 1992 to 1994 and the world of economics has changed a lot. I mean, well, in any 20 year period, the world of economics is going to change a lot. So uh, how my understanding, because again, I'm a brewer now, not an economist anymore, but my understanding of how math is being used is predominantly in the area of big data now. Mm-hmm. And that's wildly different than the sort of mathematical economic modeling that we were doing at Minnesota. Yep. So that's the backstory. I was always interested in economics as a social science, much less so as a policy prescriptive discipline. Mm-hmm. And so, um, uh, at, so, so weirdly, Minnesota was the right place for me, even though they did very little behavioral economics because they were so mathematical it drove me to looking at economics in terms of the math and what it was sort of capable of doing at the time right and i realized that the problem with economics at the time this a lot of this has changed but uh 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 was that in assuming equilibrium behavior and that equilibrium behavior was necessary for all things in economics that that didn't really fit in with economics as a, so, as a as a real social science. Mm-hmm. Now, I have a lot to say about this, by the way. <laughs> by the way. Um, now, the last term that I was at Minnesota, I actually didn't take any classes or anything. I did no work. Right. I swear to God. I did one thing. I taught history of economic thought. Right. And uh, I wanted to do that because I had done that at Reed and it was a really great class. I did it as a, like an independent study with a really wonderful professor named Dr. Art Lay. And I learned a lot and it was fascinating uh, as a way to look at economics and how it developed. And that allows you to look at 
economics as a social science and its viewpoint on social science. And this is what was always had always been crucial to how I thought about economics. Mm-hmm. So I was teaching history of thought as a way to decide if I wanted to stay in graduate school. Right. Do I want to teach or not? And in teaching that class, I came to the conclusion that the way economics thought of itself was wrong. That economics thought of itself as the mathematical revelation uh, revolution in the 1860s, William Stanley Jevons, uh, Leon Walras, Gaussian methodology, all that kind of stuff that um this is super exciting for most people i know yeah uh but i'm super into it i'm ripping it but we're, yeah, drink, yeah, yeah. But we're drinking beer while we're talking yeah, about yeah, it yeah 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 <laughs> open another beer that, <laughs> I, i'm that, nodding along that, at those names that, man those that, are those are giants and that they are giants mm-hmm. they really are because because what and and well, i'm gonna and i'm gonna include wolfgang von Thunen okay. in that the offense but, with which you both just took my my <laughs> bone mo there was really satisfying my bone mom um, yes. Jeff just grew a handlebar mustache instantly. Yes. Um, <laughs> uh, Which I'm twiddling now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, but, you know, that whole margin revolution using mathematics and differential calculus mm-hmm. to get at uh, decision-making on the margin. Mm-hmm. And everyone in economics thought that, oh, my God, the revolution is the math. Wrong. The revolution isn't the math. The revolution is the viewpoint. Mm-hmm. Right? That before that period, economics, I'm so glad you're nodding. Uh, 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 was oh, was you know was was Adam Smith and David Ricardo and John Stuart Mill and they were looking at economics from a top down perspective right. labor capital land and then with the margin revolution you have it looking at as individuals making decisions on how that affects things right mm-hmm. um, but that had been taken since 1862 and Jevons publication of his mathematical principles of economics um, up at least until the early 90s as that was what was important and then you start to have guys out of Chicago and a few other places that started to use big data and whatnot to look at behavioral economics and they trash all the mathematics right but take the viewpoint and so in some sense I left economics too early because I was like I'm interested in this viewpoint issue but ma- but economics isn't going that way right and then it did yeah and then and it that's, did and that's and that's fine but that's that's why I left yeah no, that, that makes perfect sense to me. When I was there, I was in the late 90s, so 1995 to 2000, and sort of during... Where'd you go to grad school? Cornell. Oh, okay. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And so during that time, the the sort of uh, RCT, the randomized control trial revolution came in, and then yeah, totally Steve, Steve Levitt was doing his stuff. Yeah, yeah, and yeah, so, yeah. so the data plus the experimental stuff was coming in, and the behavioral mm. just exploded. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so it changed the perspective entirely. But yeah, in 1995, it was all about Mathematics and sort of proving equilibria and yeah. understanding the the nature of equilibria. Yeah. Uh, and yes, completely applied math. Yeah. Uh, and it was hard to sort of get at the question anymore. Yeah, a right. little bit, yeah. a little bit. We had this really great prof at Minnesota. His name was Antonio Merlo, mm-hmm. and he was at the time like a really um, watch me not swear hot stuff guy <laughs> in uh, in. Uh, in a new political economy, uh-huh. which is like kind of early in that sort of behavioral stuff. And, and I liked him because he was doing yeah. interesting things. And he was Italian, and this was crucial. Uh, so he was teaching us political uh, uh, or public finance. He was doing public finance stuff yep. with us. And uh, we sat this exam with him. And it was one of those, you know, like, here's the model of the economy, and here's the rules of the economy, and okay, find the equilibrium. And we all like left the room just like, I don't know what that, like that was, 
I'm familiar with those models. I don't know. And the kid, and like none of us could solve it. Right. We came in the next day and Antonio was just like, what is wrong with you? <laughs> He's like, why can't you see this? It's blatantly Italian model. You, what you do, you take, the, you take the variable implied in the language, graft. <laughs> He's like, you take graft, graft sub T, graft over time. You put it in, the math, the math falls right out. It's so obvious. He's <laughs> like, I'm Italian. Come on, graft. It's <laughs> like, totally awesome. By the way, just one thing that will depress you and depresses me, uh, because we kind of came up, it sounds like in a similar uh, liberal arts kind of uh, slightly radical political vein uh, that history of economic thought is almost not taught anymore. Oh, I'm in not at all. I'm not surprised at all. Yeah, it's so yeah. there's almost no no connection to history or yeah. to the philosophy of economics at all. Yeah, yeah which is that doesn't that doesn't surprise me. Um, but it's a little it's a little sad because it's it is I think all those history of thought disciplines whether it's um, you know, looking at how biology mm-hmm. has developed or anthropology or anything, they're all terribly interesting. They tell you a lot about the times that were happening and they tell you a lot about how human inquiry changes. Yeah. Well they give you a yeah, they give you the big perspective, the yeah. sort of the, the eagle eye view and sort yeah. of understand the philosophy of what you're doing and not just the nuts and bolts. Yeah. But we should probably return to beer. <laughs> Jeff. Boring. I'm not saying I'm wandering away from this uh <laughs> you know, starting to look at my Twitter feed or anything, but uh, let's uh, talk hazy IPAs. <laughs> yeah, do you do you brew a hazy? Uh, sadly, yes. <laughs> uh, but isn't this like in your tradition of the un unmoored American brewer doing? Yeah, no, 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 no. It, I mean, it it is sure. I just don't like when hazy IPAs first came to my attention. What would have been two and a half years ago? Something like mm-hmm. that. I don't know when, whenever that was. Sure. Man, I was just like, what kind of stupid crap is this? <laughs> um, uh, and to some extent, I, I still think that. Um, but then, you know, Ben was like, man, we, we got to make these beers. It's, they're what people are drinking, you know. And and uh, it took a little bit of arm twisting for me and Scott. But we realized that, you know what? You're right. We should do the best job we can. Right? Mm-hmm. So, uh, I mean, there are some interesting things about hazy beers. You know, definitely, there. You know, the whole hop, um, which we call it, transmorgification or bio transformation. Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> I was trying to use more Harry Pottery language. <laughs> you were Calvin Hobbes trans- transmogrification. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Um, you know that. You know that's going on. There's there's some reasons that you might want to have haze that I understand, and a lot of them have to do with mouthfeel and things like that. But mm-hmm. as a as a drinker. It's man, it's really hard for me to say anything positive about those beers. Yeah. I, I just, I, I just, I, here, here's the way I, here's the way I think about them, and I, and, and this is obnoxious, but I, but I really mean this. I'm a beer drinker. I actually like beer. Right. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, I don't, I don't want beer that tastes so much like some other beverage that mm-hmm. oh that oh isn't that cool? It tastes like juice. If I wanted juice, I would go drink juice. Right. Right. I just, I just don't. And you also like IPAs. The, I mean, it, sure. Not for nothing. The one beer that you were planning to brew year round yeah. was an IPA. Yeah, I, yeah. Of course, I'm, I'm a Pacific Northwest brewer. Of course, I like IPAs. Sure. So, but, but you know, I want them to have some bitterness, and I want them to be. I don't, I, I don't like the mouthfeel mm-hmm. of hazy IPAs, and it's like a lot of the ones that even people think are like really phenomenal. Like, oh, isn't that mouthfeel pillowy? I drink them and I'm just like, 
but there's there's the term I use is silty. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I can feel like a it's granular. Yeah, gran- yeah, 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 yeah. And and that is a real turnoff to me. My personal opinion is that if you want that kind of mouth feel, get the beer clear and put it on nitrogen. Yeah, interesting. Yeah, you will yeah. get the softness that you're looking for. Yeah. but you can also get the crispness. That's just my opinion. I mean, and I don't mean to criticize anyone that makes them, and I don't mean to criticize anyone that likes them. We're, we're all different. I mean, I don't particularly like Hefeweizen. That doesn't yeah. mean that I don't think people should make it, right? right. Um, sure. And there's other beers I'm just not into, you know? But um, but I, well, let me tell you what I find really funny about Hazy right now is the current sort of obsession from a technical standpoint is actually, oh, man, how do I keep my beer hazy? Right. Which to me <laughs> is like the stupidest <laughs> Lasting turbidity. Yeah. Yeah, the stupidest <laughs> thing in the world. Because, I mean, I get it in some sense. The, the, the consumer has always drank with their eyes. Oh, Guinness. Right. It's like motor oil. Well, and you mentioned Hefeweizen. I mean, it's a part right. of the, the thing. Right, it's know? part of the thing. Yeah. But, think, but think about that Guinness is like motor oil. Right, thing. right, You're right, like, right. Yeah, totally like motor oil. 4% motor oil. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's not even 4%. It's like 3.8% alcohol with like a final gravity of like 0.8. You're like, oh, so viscous. <laughs> right. Right? But yeah. it's, the, it's that visual perception, right? Yeah. And so I understand that people see that haziness and then they're like, oh, man, it's going to taste like... Yes papayas and mangoes and whatever other candy that I grew up eating. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, and I and I understand that, but uh, it still just seems ridiculous to me. So I have a question. Uh, but that's it, me. Here in the Northwest, uh, we're starting to see hazies tend to back towards bitter palate a little bit, you know, a little bit more bitterness, maybe a little bit more dryness. I was talking to Ben Edmonds, and he says he likes to, theirs to finish out. Uh, a little drier. He was talking about hazies. He knows about the finish out at six or seven Play-Doh, which seems crazy to me. Disgusting. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I mean, like, I mean, like, honestly, and 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 that's that's again very for, personal, for those who don't know Play-Doh, the Play-Doh thing. I mean, percent sugar by weight. Yeah, you you have you have like a whole you you could almost uh, brew a whole nother beer out of that leftover sugar in the beer or a lot of sugar. Like that's that. taking a Pepsi and diluting it by fifty percent with water. <laughs> wow. Okay, wow. that's what that is. Wow. Yeah. Um and. And again, I don't, I don't mean to criticize the beers or anything. Every time I say that, I find it's, it's personal opinion. Well, it's I'm just a, personal opinion. What I'm wondering is, we already had a pre-existing. So, it, uh, where these started in in Boston, yeah. New England, um, they went from no hop culture, no no yeah, hop tradition yeah, to yeah, that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We have been brewing hoppy beers for 25 years before that happened. Yeah, I'm wondering, are you seeing as a brewer that people? Uh, are they all headed in the hazy? Are the are beer drinkers drinking a ton of hazies? I know there's a, a lot of hazies out there. Are they, as you're brewing, I know you actually brew more than one hazy, so you, yeah. you've tried different hazies. Are you seeing different responses? Is there kind of a Northwest hazy that's going to be emerging that's different from a Boston hazy? Uh, or is the hazy going to survive here? I, or are oh, we all yeah, gonna... No, no, no. I, I, think, I think without a doubt, I think hazy IPAs are going to remain around okay. I, I don't mm-hmm. i don't i don't think that's a question e- even when they came out and i was just bad mouthing them constantly i i, I agree <laughs> that they would be around in a decade yeah um be, again from the consumer standpoint they're easily visually recognizable mm-hmm. there's an easy name associated with them and they imply certain things about flavor mm-hmm. right right so yep. and, and those are flavors people like so um 
but uh, yeah, I I would agree with a couple things that yes, for the most part, the beers, the hazy beers that I try for the most part in the Pacific Northwest are more attenuated mm -hmm. than the ones on the East Coast. That's mm -hmm. that's definitely course. Ours are. Mm -hmm. we, we're not. We don't put lactose in or mash at 158 degrees or any bunch of stupid crap to make it taste like <laughs> fruity pebbles or some shit. Um, uh, uh, some brewers in town do. That's fine. Uh, yeah. If we all made the same beer, the world would be boring. Right. Um, but yeah, I, I, th I think that's definitely the case. And I think that is the case because um, you're right. We have a long history and people expect it. Mm -hmm. People are much more willing to accept some bitterness around here, you know? Um, uh, and you know what? Honestly, thank God. I mean, if that, if that's what it's going to take to get back to some regional style. Mm -hmm. I, right. I will tell you this, that that in the 2000s, when I was working at Rock Bottom, which is a Colorado-based co co uh, company, mm -hmm. man, Colorado liked malty, malty beers. And right. every time yes. my yeah. boss would come through and give me an audit, he'd always be like... Patrick lived in Colorado. Right. And Denver yeah. in 2000, 2006, yeah. Yeah, right. <clears throat> and, Lots of malt. Yep. Yeah, yeah. And like even the kind of hoppy beers were like, yeah. look at all the caramel malt in right, there. Exactly, you know? yeah. <laughs> Heavy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Totally. Heavy beers. Yeah. And uh and uh my boss, Kevin Reed, still a very good friend of mine. Um, he would come in and he'd be like, Try like the IPA at the rock bottom, you know, which was like a fifteen gravity beer that came down to two. Uh -huh. You know, kind of thing like straight up Northwest, you know, like let's let's dry this some bitch out, you know, and let's <laughs> make it bitter and you know. And he would be like, I think you should, you know, have a lot more malt in here. And I'd, and, I'd, and I'd be like, I'd be like, are you putting this in my review? And he'd be like, yeah, I'm going to make a recommendation. I would like you to put in the review that I am not going to do that. <laughs> well, now I see how you got fired. Yeah. <laughs> no, 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 no. Well, yeah, but I've always been like that. You know, it's just like, it's just like, and I would look at him and be like, Kevin, do you or do you not pay me to make beer for the local market? Yeah, right, I do. I just right. think you don't know anything. Uh, I make beer in the PNW and this is what we do around here. Yeah. And, and, and I think that, that people are drier beer drinkers i haven't been to san diego in quite some time four or five years i don't know what the hell's going on down there because because you know frankly you were just there patrick yeah uh, what is going to last because, year yeah because because you know uh in the 2000s that sort of san diego style was very bitter yeah very, oh, bitter. very bitter so what i discovered all, all pilsner malt like really pale bitter and, yeah, very dry bitter. Yeah, yeah. yeah yeah so i can't i can't claim to have done research, but I drank a bunch of beers and what that, I found we was- We call that research. Yeah. <laughs> Field research. A melding of sort of the new, I, I drank a couple hazies in fact, that had that citrus, but then they were still like super bitter back. Yeah. So it was kind of a mix of the yeah. San Diego yeah. bitter face yeah. melting bitterness yeah. with the kind of new citrus forward. Yeah. And, and, and I think some of it is as, as brewers, it's hard for us to give up certain things. Yeah. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? Yeah. It's like well, uh, that's what you expect if you go drink a beer in San Diego. You're expecting yeah, to have right. your tongue I, burnt yeah, off. Yeah, and, and I think that's <laughs> yeah, but but I but I think that's great. Yeah, I mean, no, if, I do if too. Beer tastes like, the I, same tell everywhere. Tell us how you feel about that, pack, No, no, no. Actually, I, no, <laughs> yeah. but that's I think is exactly the point Vance about to make, yeah, which yeah. is that San Diego beer to me, and that's what I'm looking for. Like, yeah. I sometimes I want that. Yeah, 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 exactly. I mean, and it's okay to, you know, like it's okay for a great notion to be making beers that are really not particularly in the historic Northwest style. It's fine, whatever. I mean. Hey man, have a business. It's cool, right? Um, but uh, but yeah, I mean, I think brewers are used to what they're doing. All right, yeah. He just no. insulted you. No, <laughs> yeah. Well, if we were in England, I did. 
It's international. You ever see the movie Le Mans? I think he was communicating something else, no, but I, was, I know what you mean. I was saying... He insults me all the time. I get no respect. I'm the driving oh, danger field of this podcast. That, well... So you, you believe I deserve a, no respect. That's supposed to be the true. Yeah. yeah. Uh, <laughs> wait a minute. So before we, before we move on, I just want to touch on one thing that I've been meaning to circle back to, which is uh, you have your personal opinion, but you're also running a business. You yeah, have right. to you have to meet the consumer. So you're, oh man, we make we make a bunch of beers that I don't particularly like. Right. I think that's your as a small American brewer or or. Like I was a pub brewer for 16 years. Mm -hmm. I mean, your job as a pub brewer is not to make beer you like, it's to make beer that sells, right. Right. period, right? right? And that's that's part of having a business. I mean, look, if you're, if you're one of those breweries that does under a thousand barrels of beer a year, 75 plus percent of the breweries in this country, yep. you, you can afford to be in a tiny niche and, and that's fine, I, right. I, you know, that's fine. But if, you know, we're we're trying to support one, two, three, I mean, five or six families here. Mm -hmm. You know, we, we have to be a little bit bigger. And and uh, uh, so we, we're trying to make beer that sells, but we're trying to do the best job we can of it. Right. You know, and that's that's a little bit different. Mm -hmm. You know, it's a little bit different. It's I have to tell this really quickly because it's funny. My friend John Mallet from Bell's mm -hmm. was in town uh, recently. Pretty cool. I got invited to be the eccentric day brewer this year. I'm kind of stoked <laughs> nice. about that. I get to go brew at Bell's in December. Pretty rad. Um, but uh, he looked at me and he's like, "You have a huge brewery, van." <laughs> and I was like, "I looked at him and I was like, uh, yeah, I know." He's like, he's like, he's like, the median brewery size in this country is six hundred barrels. Right. He's wow. like, You're, I was like, I was like, yeah, I know we're gigantic. Wow. <laughs> and we were like laughing at it because you know John is an old brewer like me. He's been brewing for a little bit longer than me and. You know, in the in the two thousands, if you would have said, "Man, that brewery's forty five hundred barrels," like honestly, yeah. my response would be, "How do they make it?" Right. Mm -hmm. Because you're either a brew pub getting yeah. over the counter revenue, right, or you're big enough, right? But the world is different now. Yeah. You know, so. So, so yeah, it is funny. We are a big brewery now. Yeah. So I, I think that's ridiculous. I have one more really inside businessy question, which is: you're still bottling in the five hundred milliliter bottle. Yeah. Is it hard to find shelf space now for that bottle, that package? It's it's, it's getting harder. We are yeah. about to change to the OBRC refillable bottle. Oh, cool. Okay. Oh, nice. Um, the, we haven't done it until now for a very, very simple reason. We had uh, an agreement with our bottle manufacturer just for X number of bottles, and we finally run through them. Right, right, right. right. It's and a lot of bottles, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And um, It's another I, thing brewers have to do is screw around with ordering bottles. Yeah, yeah, stuff like that, you know, um, figuring out how many labels to order, you know, stuff like that. It's, there's a lot of like material, raw material sourcing and things like that. Mm -hmm. um, uh, but I'm excited about the refillable bottles. Um, uh, I, I firmly believe this. I know that cans are very apropos right now. Mm -hmm. And uh, I know they're apropos because they're cool and there's a bunch of other things about them. But um, I firmly believe this. I firmly believe give it enough time, the world is going to go back to bottle. Hmm. And I'll Bold tell you statement. why. Uh, I'll tell you why. Because the, whereas you can debate back and forth and back and forth the carbon footprint of this bottle versus a can. Right. There is zero debate about the carbon footprint between a refillable bottle and a can. Right. The refillable bottle destroys all other carbon footprints. Right. And as that becomes more important, which it will, um, we will go back to glass. Um, as friends of mine who know much more about this than I do say, and if you take a bottle and you don't bother to recycle it, no big loss. 
But if you take a can and don't bother to recycle it, there was an enormous amount of energy and, uh, and mining that went into making that can. Right. And unless that can gets reused again, which takes an enormous amount of electricity, right. an enormous amount, right? Um, whereas a refillable bottle, that water can be reused, refiltered. There's all kinds of things, you know. You're not mm-hmm. don't have to use fresh water all the time. Um, those man, those bottles are manufactured close, so they're not shipped all over yeah. all over the place. Yep. Yeah. yeah, yeah, sure, I get it. They weigh more, you know. And 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 some of these arguments that people are making about glass versus can right now to me are just ludicrous, you know. Like the oh well, can clearly beats glass because. <laughs> No light gets through a can. You're you're a hundred percent right. That is, a, I'm not going to disagree with you. I'm only going to ask you this: When was the last time you had a light struck you? <laughs> so well, that I had is, a corona. When, yeah, when we, <laughs> when, when we <laughs> did our tasting <laughs> and we had a corona. Right, but 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 you know what? You, you see exactly yeah, yeah, what I'm yeah, saying. Yeah, yeah. No, That's, no, no. That argument is moot. It's ridiculous. Right, that has right. been solved with very simple other things. So that's not an argument. That's yeah. a, that's that's stupid. Now let's go to the um, the oxygen thing. Oh can so much better for oxygen i mean you can leak through a crown seal (laughs) okay the same people telling me this are the same people who are like oh when i put my beer in a can you got to drink it within two weeks (laughs) (laughs) right you're like okay do you understand why you have to drink your beer in two weeks it's because you've done such a crap job of putting the beer in can that you have a massive amount of oxygen that you have locked in right right (laughs) with the can yeah and i'm not saying all canning is terrible right you have a nice big khs rotary filler those things are great yeah you're a small brewery working on you know, a small inline canning line and you have all the experience of a brewery that started in 2014 and you were a home brewer before. Right. You're doing a crap job. <laughs> it's not that your beer is so amazing that it gets delicate. You're doing a bad job. <laughs> I hate to tell you all this. This whole, my beer has to get consumed in two weeks. Learn how to put beer in a pack. Let me tell you a story. <laughs> <laughs> All right, we we are gonna have to wrap this one up. So no, this story's really good, though. But, but no, finish no, no, the story. Let me, let me go. Okay. Yeah, yeah. All right. So, so I'm only bookmarking that, not to impede this, but so that that doesn't lead into another story. Thanks. Yes. Years but, ago, and, and, years ago, there was uh, an assistant brewmaster from uh, Latrobe Brewing, old Latrobe um, Rolling Rock. Rolling Rock, right? Yeah. And he had just left, and he was starting his own brew pub in somewhere in Pennsylvania. And I was working at the Rock Bottom in Bethesda, Maryland. So he came by uh, with the JV Northwest, the equipment manufacturer salesman, and he uh, uh, came by to look at the equipment, and, and we, were, we were chatting. And he said, well, I worked for Latrobe. I was like, oh, that's cool. I worked for a big brewery too, you know, German brewmaster. He's like, oh, yeah, we had German brewmaster. He said, let me tell you a German brewmaster story. He said, he said one time, he said, the German brewmaster was sitting in the beer stube, after work and he said phil phil come over have a beer with me and he said very very traditional brew and the brewmaster says come have a beer with me yes sir and you sit down and the brewmaster looked at him and said phil do you know how long it takes us to mash in or uh, to uh, mill the malt for a uh, batch of uh, older trobe 33 rolling rock and he said yes sir i do it said 20 minutes and then how long does mashing take that takes about a half an hour and how long is the mash it takes about an hour and he makes him walk through every single little how long is lauter how long is you know how long is boy come to boy how long, is, how long does sit in the hot you know the hot receiving tank you know you know like every single thing you know like, how long does it from how much yeast do we pitch you know like every single question mm-hmm. then he gets to the end and he says and, and then he just starts saying, and then what do we do? And then what do we do? And how long does that take, right? And so he gets to the point where, there, where uh, Phil says, 
Oh, and then we rack it, and then it's filtered, and then we rack it into the root tank. And then what do we do with it? He says, oh, well, then you give it to me, and I put it in a bottle. Wrong! <laughs> <laughs> I give it to you, and you F it up in less than one minute! <laughs> <laughs> you want to know what the hardest part about brewing is? Packaging. Uh, you want to know why your beer doesn't last more than two weeks? Because you can't do the hardest part about your job. You think the hardest part about your job is, ooh, what's the recipe? I make beer for a living, yes, I just insulted you. <laughs> <laughs> Your job is to be a brewer. Van just had the sarcasm uh, air quotes there too. Yeah. Um, but uh, your job is to be a brewer. If your beer deteriorates rapidly when you put it in a can, you have a problem. Do not blame it on freshness. Do not blame the consumer for not getting there fast enough. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. Well, uh, uh, just getting back to the refillable bottles, it, it becomes a sort of cultural shift. I mean, in Germany, you yeah. go and you get your big crate of refillable yeah, you bottles food. and yeah. you use them and you put them back yep. in the crate and then you take yep. the crate back to the yep. store. So yep. it's uh, it's definitely doable. It happens a lot. Well, so. and that's that's what OBRC is really trying to do in Oregon. You know, the, mm -hmm. the fantasy... those guys here. The, the yeah. fantasy with OBRC is that they've started this refillable bottle program and mm -hmm. the, the real problem is they kind of started it a little bit too late, sadly. But if they can get every bottle in Oregon, because they have a, a 500 ml and a 12-ounce bottle, if they can mm -hmm. get every bottle, and bottles will continue to be sold, mm -hmm. um, in, in Oregon over to that, then uh, uh, it is the case that the state of Washington and the state of California have already talked to OBRC. Mm -hmm. And the, the real fantasy is that, is that eventually there'll be a West Coast bottle. Right. That, yeah. That's the aim. Yeah. The, 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 the great end goal. And, and the funny thing is you're using the German bottle, so those things do exist, right? Like that does happen where you end up with right, these kind yeah. of iconic bottles that come from yeah. being able to have them interchangeable and returnable. Yeah, so, yeah. yeah, yeah. Yeah, I mean, but and, and that is really why, I mean, I really honestly believe, like, give it enough time, I think we'll move away from can, you know? Um, uh, and and I, I think it's, it's particularly most responsible for breweries that primarily sell their beer locally to be in refillable bottle. Right. Um, because the energy savings are are, are massive mm -hmm. you know yeah so all right well we should uh wrap this up i think we could go on for another hour as you can see van is an endless font of fascinating info we haven't even talked about dungeons and dragons we haven't talked about dungeons and dragons we haven't talked about <laughs> be, 1971 that, julia's we haven't talked about a lot of stuff we, we save that for jeff's other pod uh, today in Dungeons and Dragons. <laughs> Ooh, that sounds good. Yeah, this is daily pod. We just yeah. started a, <laughs> his, da yeah. his daily pod. Yeah, <laughs> yeah it's kind of shocking. I've never we've that's twenty four sided dice. Yet. Who knew? Yeah, there's no. <laughs> is there it, could the geometry no, out there please to be there's yeah, gotta be a 24 sided there's gotta be there's gotta, there's gotta be a 24 solid sided whatever yeah. that's called rhomboid or whatever I'm, I don't know. I'm sure they exist but it's, it's just not, it's not a part of D&D &D. <laughs> how, how, yeah, how, yeah, yeah. how am I how, how yeah. offended am I yeah. <laughs> I, how do you feel about the 100 sided die we have one it's really hard to see yeah, so that's what I don't you, like about you, it. It's, it's basically a circle and it takes yeah, forever to stop and you then you got to look at it. You have a super flat surface. Yeah. yeah. Any kind of tilt and you're dead. Yeah, yeah. Exactly. that's what I don't like about it. Like, yeah. I mean, come on, do some math. Use two tenors. Exactly. <laughs> come on. It's true. See, we could easily go another hour. Yeah. Um, yeah, so just switch over to the other pod. Jeff, Jeff's there every day. <laughs> All right. <laughs> every day. Every day. Talking about D&D. &D. 
Uh, Van, thank you very much for showing up. Yeah. Well, thank you guys. Uh, yeah, this has been really, really delightful. And definitely, if you're in Portland, Oregon, check out uh, Gigantic Brewing. Uh, they have the wonderful uh, Champagne Lounge uh, where you can go and have a beer. I guess not coincidentally, a stone's throw from Reed College. That's right. No, totally coincidentally. Was it really? Yeah, yeah, totally. Right. Um, breaking news? Yes. Breaking news, we signed a lease on 70th and Gleason. <gasps> Wow. wow. Okay, so in about six years after Portland's, so is that Byzantine? Are you are you moving process? or you're, you're moving? No, or? no, 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 no. Oh, second, 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 We're part of Seventieth and Gleason, Northeast Portland. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We're we're going to be part of a. Uh, oh, if you guys are familiar with like the zipper in the ocean, that kind of thing, guerrilla development projects. Uh, not, um, no, not at so, all. So, <laughs> I know, I know, I know zippers. Okay, and I know and the I ocean. Realize. Yeah, you're familiar. Okay, you're Putting familiar with those two, two kinds. Yeah, it doesn't doesn't make any sense. <laughs> um, it's sort of like a, a building that's got a common space, a few kitchens, so you have a choice of. Okay, yeah, yeah. And then kind of an anchor bar tenant, where the anchor bar tenant. Ah, oh. it's sort of like a barley pod, but without, po- but without. It, it's, but, but instead of food carts, they're kitchens. They're like kitchens instead of carts. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, interesting. Yeah, yeah. Very good. That'll be a Finds cool project. Yeah. And that, this is the first time it's being announced. Breaking. I, like yeah, yeah. Breaking news. Breaking um, news. By the time, boop, 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 the, by the time, boop, 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 yeah. Jeff's by just the, disappointed that it wasn't on the D and D pod, man. Like, oh. <laughs> right. You should have saved, saved that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I could have brought listeners. <laughs> um, I think we're probably releasing uh, a uh, what you call it. Press release. Thank you. Yeah. Um, probably this week sometime. So right. we that'll gotta, probably, we be, rush. We that'll probably be last week by the time. We yeah. got to rush this to press. Yeah. yeah. We'll get this out. All right. <laughs> Ezra will just be like, ah! Well, very congr- cool. Congratulations. That's yeah, great. that is very cool. Yeah, yeah we're excited. Yeah. And the original location is uh, delightfully located at 26, 26 and? Steel. 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 Thank you. In the southeast. Yeah. In a lovely industrial area. It is. <laughs> yeah. Uh, a short walk from... Uh, read okay uh a few words about going out are we ready to end this thing let's let's end this thing yeah (laughs) okay a few words about going out subscribe to us on itunes soundcloud stitcher or wherever you get your podcasts and don't forget to rate us and review us five stars please and actually i haven't seen uh i think we haven't been promoting that enough so definitely do that we've got to keep uh we all apparently can hear us on x-ray fm that's right 7, 7 p.m. on Thursdays, yeah. Will's nodding. Yeah, that's 7 p.m. on Thursday. Really? Like, how, how long is that show? One hour. So this is... So it's definitely going to be edited for, for yeah, content. Yeah, yeah, edited well, for content. You cut out, yeah, you cut all the F-bombs and there's like 20 minutes left. <laughs> <laughs> uh, okay, so that helps other listeners find our show. I'm talking about reviewing and rating. Uh, we'd love to hear from you. Please send us your questions or comments. Jeff at beervonablog.com is the place to send your email or you can visit us on social media. We have a Beervana pod twitter we do yes that's right beer von a pod yep okay at beer von a pod yeah uh jeff blogs at beer von a blog he tweets at at beer vana. patrick tweets at beeronomics uh and i guess that's it <laughs> i'm looking at these empty glasses how I are we gonna cheers us we now? can't we always uh, part of our tradition van you don't know this is we always cheers with whatever we've got left in the glass and we got nothing left in the glass oh, we keep drinking it. left okay here we wait, go you, drinking wait, the beer you, oh, wait i'm sorry i can't hear what you just said you said what there you always you always cheers with what? Beer, but we drank it all. As, no, I, I see beer in your glass. Uh, I don't no, know what you're talking I about. I see, yeah. I see. No, no, it's, it's, it's all quick, clear. Some quick, quick action quick, by, by Van Fancy Havik. dancing by all right, Van Hagen. <laughs> Van Hagen of a gigantic. Thank cheers, you very much. Cheers. Full cheers. No seven years now.
X-Ray.